Hello, my name is Adam Eason. Welcome to episode 71 of Hypnosis Weekly. Hello, hypnosis friends, and a very warm welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Once again, in my own highly biased opinion, I think I have a fabulous show lined up for you today. Now then, in a short while, I will be sharing with you this week's interview with my guest, Kate Biven-Marks. Then... We'll have this week's hypnosis in the news stories, examining the media where hypnosis is featured. I'm going to offer up some personal subjective commentary on the ways hypnosis is portrayed in the media. Also comment on some of the content of those media stories. And uh, I've got a couple of beauties for you today. Uh, I raised a wry smile then, uh, for those of you that were unable to tell. Um, We then return with our professional discussion with uh, my guest, Kate Beaven-Marks. We'll be talking about raising standards within hypnotherapy training. And Kate draws upon her own PhD examination of the subject. Some fascinating stuff. Uh, We'll round things off with this week's hypnosis evidence-based factoid before I bid you farewell for another week. Now then, as I say at the beginning of every Hypnosis Weekly episode, this podcast is something that I want to encompass a feeling of embracing diversity, celebrating the field of hypnosis and encouraging friendly, professional, enjoyable discussion and debate, as well as doing its best to inform and educate. I do not share the same stance as most of our guests and at times have major differences in approach and leaning but all are incredibly lovely people who I'd happily talk with until late in the pub and all of whom following their time here on Hypnosis Weekly I have a great deal of respect for. If you have questions, queries, thoughts or feedback do get in touch via the Hypnosis Weekly website. All the references made in the discussions along with related links are posted at each episode on the website www.hypnosis-weekly.com. You can add your thoughts, comments and make any suggestions there too. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else to help us reach more of the hypnosis community. It's greatly appreciated. And if you enjoy this podcast, please do go give us a favourable rating, even uh, a review over at iTunes. I'll be a BFF if you do. You know it takes, oh what, five seconds and one or two clicks to give us a favourable rating at iTunes. So what are you waiting for? Anyway, first of all today then, this week's interview with Kate Beaven Mark. I met Kate very briefly last year and one of the reasons I wanted her on this show is that she seems to have as much of a passion for raising hypnotherapy training standards as I have and that's going some I'm telling you that's no mean feat she also collects hypnosis books as I do Mm. and has a doctorate in education examining the standards of many national and international training providers I mean, what's not to like there? She's a shoo-in. So, for now, get comfy, my friends. Turn up the volume. Sip on your tea. Enjoy this week's interview. So, as I've just been discussing, I'm delighted to welcome to the Hypnosis Weekly podcast the one and only Kate Beaven-Marks. Kate, welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Thank you very much, Adam, for inviting me. So tell us a little bit about, about you, first of all, then. Um, um, how, how did you get into this field? Tell us about your background and how you've arrived at where you are now. OK, background. I didn't have any interest in hypnotherapy or psychotherapy when I left school. And I went to work in, in a sort of corporate environment. But as I started doing that... I started to notice how people were using language Mm. and whether somebody communicated well or communicated poorly. And at the time, I was also doing a lot of teaching. Back then, I was teaching roller skating, which was Ah. quite good fun. And I even got to teach some of the the members of or the new cast joining Starlight Express, which was definitely great fun. That was fantastic. So... With teaching particularly, I found that if you frame things a certain way, you got better results. And in every job I had from then onwards, I always seemed to have a teaching element, which was quite good because I really liked teaching. And that 
grew my interest in communication in the use of language so being a bit of a research person myself I started reading up and I talked to people and I really started to explore it and from that I got into the psychology of it Mm. And the underlying things of why some people responded some ways and other people responded other ways. And it was still just an interest. And I did some, I started reading about hypnosis and hypnotherapy and none of it was really with a view to being a professional at that point. It was just something that added to my teaching. Mm. I would use, we, we might sort of call it waking state hypnosis when I was teaching. And then I was working in a university and part of my job was managing occupational health and chatting to one of my colleagues mentioned that I needed to have some surgery. And I, for a long while, I haven't got good pain relief when I have surgery. And he said, well, hypnotherapy can help with that. And I'm like, well, I've read about it, but I'm not sure that mm. I actually believe it exists. <laughs> Mm, I'm, you know, I don't know whether I want you messing about with my mind. I had all of those myths that we now know are complete myths. Mm. So he sort of said, well, come and have a chat. So I'm like, okay. And two hours into our chat, he was like, well, do you want to experience hypnosis? And I'm thinking, hmm, I'm not too sure I haven't already, but hmm, let's have a go then. <laughs> and... <laughs> Um, I later found out he was heavily into Ericksonian hypnosis, so clearly he'd been using it. So we did some hypnotherapy work, and I'd been, I was about to have a tooth implant and had been dreading it because the last one was so painful. Mm. And went the next day, had my tooth implant work done. And I came out, and I looked at my watch, and I thought, the cheeky sods. <laughs> that, that level of swearing is okay, but um, the cheeky sods. They've altered my watch. There's no way that amount of time has passed. Right. Hmm. Got into the car, thought, yeah. well, this is a bit odd. And it was only when I got home and looked at Sky and thought, well, nobody can alter Sky. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> that I realised that something different had happened. And it's like, okay, this is curious. So I went back and I had more sessions and really, really got into it. And before too long, he was like, hmm, well, let me teach you how to do it. And that was the start of it. I think he said he created a hypnosis, not a monster, but a um, an affectionado <laughs> or somebody that was super passionate about it. Because from that first moment, really, hypnosis has totally been my focus. Yeah, yeah. And, and it grew. Yeah, 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 to, 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 to where you're at. And... Um, 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 so, so, so you started off with 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 the interest within the Ericksonian stuff, um, mm. um, I, I, but but that's developed, hasn't it? Oh, ab absolutely. I started off being super Ericksonian, and my friends and colleagues who know me now might be quite surprised at that mm. because I seem to have um, got a an ability now to be very authoritarian and dynamic as well. Yeah. So it's nice to have a range. Yeah. My interest from that very first moment, I be I devoured books. Mm. I devoured every single possible resource. If there was anything that I could order from anywhere, any course that I could go on to, I got into it so heavily that I changed the focus for my doctorate and made that all about hypnosis as well. Mm. Mm. And so. Yeah, yeah, I'm really looking forward to discussing some of those things um, um, later on in in the show um, 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 uh, about your doctorate and about some of uh, some of the some of the things to do with hypnotherapy training standards that we're going to talk about later. Mm -hmm. um, th through that journey, then through that journey and through that like like con consuming of of the hypnosis field, working your way through it. Um, um, where are you at as far as hypnosis is concerned today? I mean, I mean, how, how do you define it? How did you arrive at that definition? How do you explain it um, to perhaps clients or people that are interested when you get cornered um, um, <laughs> in the kitchen at parties? Um, um, yeah, yeah. Where, where are you at with regards to how you explain it and how you how you talk to people about it? I think one of the things that I was told very early on, um, and to use an American sort of phraseology to have a good elevator pitch 
Mm. And that was so true. In fact, it's, it's actually coming to real truth because I do some work with a London teaching hospital. And one of the things that I find is by having a sort of uniform with clinical hypnotist on it in huge letters, yeah. and I'm not the smallest person, so they really are huge letters, that people see this in the left and they're going, well, what's all that about? Mm. And the number of times that I have missed the floor I intended to get out <laughs> on because I was talking to them, I can't even count them anymore. But it is about having a definition that I find that works for the individual. So it's about, to some extent, having a simple definition, something like that it's a focused state of attention, mm-hmm. and then building that out to the level of information that's right for them yeah. in the right context. Because as you know, and as, as everybody that listens to this knows, I'm sure there are no, there is no single definition. And for me, those definitions are very much context specific. Mm. So you could have a hugely broad definition. The American Psychological Association a long while ago had a, had a very big paragraph yeah, they of really definition. Did. Other people have a very short paragraph of definition. And certainly I was at a great talk by the Royal Society of Medicine a few years ago where we the whole audience was debating definitions. But there isn't as definite one. And for me, it's about getting the pre-talk or the explanation in the right frame for the person that's asking sure. so that they get the information that they need. And something that that's recently emerged, a bit of research from Myerson, was about remythification of mm. hypnosis. So it isn't just about dispelling myths. It's about, in a way, keeping an aspect of the magic so that people can engage with it without imagining that it's a magic wand, of course. So using using their existing education, whatever it may be, um, even mm-hmm. if it's kind of filled, filled with myths and, and bringing that to life and riding on the back of it. Oh, totally. I mean, it's mm. I found certainly with the patients that I work with in the hospitals that some people are very internal locus of control and they're very collaborative. Other people are more external locus of control and they want things done to them. Yeah. And to tell somebody who's very external that it's a highly collaborative process and you're losing them already. Sure. sure. You know, whereas if you're talking to somebody who's very collaborative, more internal, and you say this is something that's done to you, it's something that I'm you know, in control of, and they're like, nah, not too sure I like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Um, um, so, what's influenced that then? Um, um, tell us. I mean, you you mentioned a couple of people already, um, but who, who are some of your major influences in this field, Kate? What are the, some of the books and authors that have taught you most? And I know you've read a lot. So, um, but, but what sort of been the most influential upon you? And perhaps you'd explain a little bit about why. I think my first answer to that is 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 perhaps a little bit broad in that so many different influences and it isn't just the books it's the people that I work with the people that I meet even if somebody has a view totally opposing what I believe there's something to learn from it I mean I really I've always gone back to Yapco and trance work really really found that amazing some of the history of hypnotism books absolutely love those because things like Robin Waterfield's Hidden Depths um and I think it was Rosenfeld's Critical History of Hypnotism. Mm. Getting an understanding of how we've got to where we are is really interesting. Yeah. But then reading something perhaps as controversial as Dylan Evans' Placebo. Yeah. That was fascinating. And then in contrast, you've got the older ones like The Structure of Magic with Gwendolyn and Bandler. So all of those things start to add in. Um, even Spanos, and Spanos is very sort of non-state, I, I find. But reading his book on hypnosis was a fascinating insight into his view. Yeah. So, um, say, Yapko's trance work is a favourite of mine. I, <laughs> giving Rory a bit of a plug, though, I was really surprised when he, he sent me, he did send me a copy of his Beginner's Guide to Hypnotherapy. Yeah. And I read it, and it was not what I expected. It had so much more content in it. And I thought, hmm, this is a really 
powerful beginner's guide. So it all depends, you know, I don't just read the cover. It's looking beyond that. Yeah. Um, other things, I think some of the, the Ericsson stuff, the Uncommon Therapy, My Voice Will Go With You. And I was a bit of a book fiend, I've got to admit. So I've got the original Pavlov book and the whole series of Heartland's Medical and Dental Hypnosis. Cool. So I think it's, it's I stopped counting when I was over a thousand books. <laughs> um, um, but I've had to replace the shelves in my bookcase twice now because they bow. <laughs> um, so it's, it's things like that that are really, you know, I love going back to them and just dipping in every now and then for something extra, a different viewpoint. And it's really nice to sometimes sit down and just read a different perspective. Yeah. yeah and then, right. of course, you've, you've got the NLP books and you've got the psychology books. And those you can go on forever and yeah. read. Yes. So huge. I really do like a good hypnosis book. But then again, I'm a bit of a conference junkie. And I love speaking at conferences. It's one of my sort of big passions. But being there, getting to sit in on different talks, and sometimes I'll deliberately choose talks that I wouldn't necessarily have picked as my first choice. Good. And because of that, I've got some amazing insights and learning that I wouldn't have got if I'd just gone for the easy option. Yeah. So it's really, I think, to answer that in summary, it's every client, every book, every course, every seminar has had an, an influence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great, great. I love to hear that. Um, I'm, I'm, I like the idea of purposely going to stuff that perhaps is potentially challenging for us at conferences. I, I think conferences, conventions, a lot of people turn up to them just looking to confirm what they already know rather than properly being being challenged and looking to draw upon contrasting perspectives. So it's really refreshing to hear that. So, Th throughout the years that you've been working within the field um, um, and the, the, the work that you've done with clients, with your teaching and so on, tell me, tell me what, what's been one of the most impressive applications of hypnosis that you've directly witnessed, that you've been there in amongst it thinking, wow? <laughs> um, I think it depends on whether it's expe experienced or witnessed. Um, yeah. I, at the conferences... There's been so many things. Oh, I saw an amazing demo of ultra depth once, and she literally switched the guy from ultra depth to ultra height. Mm. And it's like, wow. And you could see such a difference in state. It was phenomenal. Some I've loved some watching some of the pain management demos and the talks. But then even even things like oh, watching some of the hypno students at their very first time that they've done hypnosis and the looks on their faces when they actually look and think, oh, I've got them into hypnosis. Wow. I mean, that's, that's almost magical. Yeah. No, that, that's really cool. Um, I think Rory might say that um, one of the most impressive applications is that he's been teaching me to swear um, <laughs> so, using hypnosis. And from an experience. So, so basically he's leading you astray. I, totally, I'm corrupting him with academia. If I'd have he's known this when me with swearing, <laughs> if I'd have known this when he was on the show, I would have I would have remonstrated with him. <laughs> yeah, I think he he tried the sort of the, the non-hypnotic version. It didn't work, <laughs> um, but but now he gets very very pleased when his occasional bits of hypnosis work, and I do swear. However, um, recently he's been helping me out with some hypnosedation. Mm. And I've had some quite significant surgeries recently with just hypnosis. And that has been an amazing experience. Yeah, I bet. So um, quicker recovery. And it's been a really, really good learning experience as well. I mean, the last one, we, we sort of prepped and talked about it. And we hadn't anticipated smells, odours. Yeah, yeah. Um, of things that the surgeon might do. So now we know to add into future protocols to add that in. And it's yeah. it's really good, I think, sometimes to to experience what you teach other people to do so Absolutely. that you can analyze it and get fresh perspectives 
and develop and evolve your own work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, um, you know, I think, I think all all hypnosis professionals should have some kind of experience of of you know practicing practicing a little bit of what they preach, but also mm -hmm. yeah, you know, being on the receiving end of some of that experience. I think as well, you know, for for one's for one's own belief investment, um, I'm incredibly useful. Um, so so if you go back to that day whatever whenever that day was <laughs> you know when you started out um either as a either as a therapist or a hypnosis professional in, in whatever guise uh, you know knowing knowing the stuff that you know now is, is there anything that you would do differently um and if so it, would you share that <laughs> and is there any, any advice the person that you are today would give that younger version of you that you'd extend to our listeners oh that does that does make me giggle um yes the thing that comes to mind straight away I would be better organized in note-taking and storing stuff. Mm. <laughs> um, I've gathered an immense range of resources. As I say, every client is a learning experience. Yeah. And it's it would take too long now to probably to go back and do it, but it would be amazing to go back and separately record all of those individual nuggets and gems of inspiration yeah. and to better catalog all of the resources that I've got because – as it as it grows, you don't tend to do that. You just carry on moving forwards. Yeah. And then at some point you look at it and you think, wow, that's a lot of stuff. Hmm. And every now and then I'll sort of go through my, my resources cupboards and find something and it's like, oh, what a, you know, oh, it's a treasure. And I go back into it. And I think something that I would really say to a key piece of advice is the more you put into it, the more you get out of it. Hmm. And I think if you're passionate about something, you'll work harder than if it's just a job. If you're passionate about it, if you're really engaged with it and what you do makes you happy and fulfilled, then you're not doing it just for the money or the status or the prestige. You're doing it for you yeah. because it what, what makes you happy and fulfilled. And I think in a way, life's too short to do something that doesn't work for you. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. I think that's... Um... Some some lovely advice. Some really lovely advice. Tell me, um, Kate, throughout your throughout your study of the field, um, um, what of what are some of the thoughts you have with regards to evidence based approaches to hypnotherapy? Is it something that you favour or not? Or where are I you think at with that? I'm I'm very pro evidence based approaches to hypnosis. However, I think it's only part of the jigsaw. Yeah. And I'll I'll expand on that a bit, I think. Yeah. Evidence-based practice is really important because it takes a view beyond our own thoughts. Mm. However, I think we are also, particularly in the UK, and even I was talking about it in the States last year, we're missing out on practice-based evidence. Yeah. hypnotherapists aren't really being their own researchers and this was highlighted in a house of lords paper i think all the way back in 2000 when some of the recommendations were that there, were, there was more research from the field yeah. and one of the things that does concern me a little is that i meet many hypnosis researchers because of the work i do with hypnosis research and a lot of those tend to be psychologists who are running the research and often technicians are the ones that are doing the suggestibility tests. They're doing the putting people apparently into trance and they're not connected to what it's all about. They don't have a fundamental understanding of what hypnosis is. For example, oh, it must be about 10 years ago now, I went to a talk at the Royal Society and some researchers were presenting their their findings and they were talking about something and saying that it was a negative hallucination whereas it actually wasn't it was both a positive and a negative hallucination mm. and it was i was it was interesting i was sitting next to an academic and we were both sort of chatting away going that isn't right however the problem is is that ill-informed research can send people off in the wrong directions and can add to misunderstandings. So I'm really, really keen on hypnotherapists being actively involved in research 
And, you know, it's lovely. I've had a couple of my students or my graduates recently having papers published in journals. Right. And it's it's fantastic that sort of real hypnotherapists, active practicing hypnotherapists are communicating, are sharing their, their procedures, their successes. And so practice-based evidence, I think, is an undermined resource yeah yeah ab- absolutely it is absolutely it is um, um and i think you know i i think it's probably a you know the vast majority of the field that are you know blissfully unaware of what that actually means or what it would encompass and and, and what would be involved within it um um likewise you know with regards to evidence-based practice i, I encounter you know vast swathes of the field that are blissfully unaware of uh, uh, really the vast majority of the evidence that we have to to support this field. Um, Now Kate we are going to talk about um, I mean a short while we're going to talk about hypnotherapy training standards. Um, um, Mm. um, In the meantime where can people go to learn more about you, your work, your approach and so on? The easiest place to have a quick read up about me is on my website, which is www.hypnotc.com, which is Hypnotc, the hypnotherapy training company, or they can quite simply email me, which is kate at hypnotc.com. Great, great. There will be links to both of those. Um, um, at this episode's page of the Hypnosis Weekly website. Go go follow them, go check Kate out, learn a bit more about her. Um, for now, uh, we will be back with Kate in just a few minutes' time. I really enjoyed that. Uh, we'll be back with Kate shortly, as I said. Uh, on to this week's hypnosis in the news then. I'm talking about three stories this week. I'm going to mention three stories. Uh, first, as uh, a Daily Mail article with a headline, uh, Mother Battling with Nerves Hires a Hypnotherapist in a Desperate Bid to Pass the Hardest Exam in the World. So the article sets up uh, saying that, um, you know, these days, uh, you know, with smartphones, we can get directions from A to B quite easily. Um, But that for London black cab drivers, it's not that simple. They need to learn 25,000 of the capital streets, 100,000 landmarks off by heart in order to pass what's referred to as the knowledge which is a notoriously tough exam that effectively makes um, or turns people into the human equivalent of a sat-nav. Um, the sheer volume of detail, not to mention its complexity, is such that studying for the knowledge has uh, been compared to earning a degree in law or medicine, and the test has been billed as one of the hardest exams in the world. And um, passing all four stages can take, or does take, four years on average, um, with some students racking up 8,000 hours of study time, and apparently only 30% of the 7,000 applicants each year seeing it through to the end. Um, And, you know, I've got to say, whenever I jump into a black cab in London, uh, you know, I am amazed. At, uh, at, at, at how brilliant these people are. Anyhow, there's a new TV show, The Knowledge, World's Toughest Taxi Test, and uh, interviewing a number of different people. And they followed a single mum, Joe Chandler from Essex, who's been studying the knowledge for six and a half years, but suffers from these terrible nerves. She's so fraught in the examining room that uh, uh, she has sought the help of a psychotherapist, a hypnotherapist, to overcome her problem. Um, and, and as a result, eventually makes it past the first two of the four notoriously tough exams. And she says, you know, it's been a long, a long road for her, um, but she feels that she's being held back because of her nerves. Um, um, so... She, she sought this help from a hypnotherapist, but her attempt at passing the test um, um, was, was overseen on the show by a self-confessed difficult examiner called Mr. Dunning, and it ends in failure for Joe. Um, and she, she goes blank when she's asked about a particular, uh, a particular direction, a way to go. And she said that she felt extremely exposed, like someone had a spotlight on her. She felt um, um, embarrassed and she was sweating profusely and her anxiety kicked in and so on. Um, um, and, but, you know, she's determined. She's determined and she's going to crack on and give it another go. So 
the story with this major headline about seeing a hypnotherapist. Um, um, and the story is that she's on telly. She got incredibly nervous. She saw a hypnotherapist and did not pass. Um, and, and it just strikes me as you know, a classic case of the word hypnotherapist making for a good headline. It's a minor part of this story about this woman, um, it, which didn't really lead to major success. Um, and I'm really unsure of the reason for the word being used in the title at all, if I'm honest. Anyhow, um, there's happier, happier things uh, with our next story. Um, and this is a story that's been making the rounds. Um, Hypnosis CDs non-inferior to hypnotherapist for children with IBS, functional abdominal pain. Um, and this is a story of a recent piece of research um, uh, featured in a gastroenterology uh, journal recently, that home-based hypnotherapy exercises on a CD were actually shown to be as effective as individual gut-directed hypnotherapy performed by a qualified therapist in children with irritable bowel syndrome. Um, um, and this was a, a well-constructed randomized clinical trial. And um, the study confirms findings that hypnotherapy is actually highly valuable in treating children with IBS, um, which is something that, that we all know about, you know, really impressive evidence that we've got. Um, um, and and the, the uh, researchers wrote that they believed hypnotherapy should be incorporated into national guidelines for the treatment of pediatric IBS. Um, and and due to that they're suggesting and citing that due to a shortage of well-trained child hypnotherapists and um, that that's hypnotherapists that deal with uh, children not actual children that are also hypnotherapists but um boom home-based self-hypnosis exercises could expand access to to this this therapy and they they, they compared effectiveness um and um uh, they randomly assigned 260 children um, to undergo um, at least five sessions via CD per week for three months. And, um, you know, it's, it's a really good, well-constructed study with, with great results and just showed that a home-based treatment with a hypnosis CD actually provided a really good rationale for implementation of this, this process with, with children. So great news there. Let's hope that that develops into something. Now, thirdly, uh, I have a fascinating, so I'm going to do my best to keep a straight face here. Okay, third story. Gay man says hypnosis turned him from an exclusive top to a selfish bottom. And yes, indeed, this is um, I'm an article from Instinct magazine, a gay magazine, whereby uh, a Denver man, uh, Brent, claims that he went from being an exclusive top to a selfish bottom after receiving hypnosis. Now, if you need to know what all this terminology means, you have to go and Google it because I'm not going to explain that for you. But Brent says that him and his partner were, have always been in an open relationship, in part because he doesn't like to bottom. Brent says that professionals suggested that 75% of his problem with bottoming was actually psychological. So he gave hypnosis a whirl. And he says, I'll quote him, the whole thing lasted about an hour or so. I don't exactly remember. What I do remember is that when I came out of hypnosis, I was super alert and very calm. Now then, the rest of the article um, is virtually unquotable, if I'm honest. Um, it was incredibly successful anyway, the hypnosis, by all accounts. Um, um, uh, like I said, I'm not going to share any more of the quotes from Brent because they're far too profane and graphic for my typical podcast audience, I think. Um, but I will say that I laughed heartily for a long time after reading it. I really did. Um, I simply had to make mention of it on today's show. Um, um, you can go and read the article yourself for the full and rather frank quotes in the Instinct magazine article. And um, yes, hypnosis is really being used for a, a diverse range of things these days. Eh? Um, links to all of these stories, these articles referred to here, are listed on this week's uh, podcast episode page on the Hypnosis Weekly website, www.hypnosis-weekly.com. Next up, we have this week's professional discussion then. Um, I welcome back Kate Beaven-Marks. Um, those of you who tune into the show each episode will know... Uh, I, I, and by the way, I really appreciate you people. Um, um, and those of you who tune into each episode will know that I periodically get on one. And last week, last time out, um, was one such occasion whereby I was frothing at the mouth as a result of some things that have been said and shared online about the length and quality of hypnotherapy trainings. If you've not heard it, uh, do go and have a listen. Uh, it's uh, in between last week's interview and discussion segments. 
Anyway, this week's discussion with Kate leads on very nicely from that. Um, It's a good link, in fact, albeit in a slightly more civilised format today. As I mentioned earlier, Kate has studied this field extensively and has plenty of very interesting and illuminating things to say when it comes to raising the standards of hypnotherapy training. So therefore, here is this week's professional discussion with Kate. Enjoy. So I'm back now. Uh, we're joined once again by this week's guest, Kate Beaven-Marks. Kate, um, I was asking, when I asked you to invite you to come on a show and I said, look, what, what, what should we talk about within our discussion? There's a number of things that I was going to attempt to sort of long arm you into with regards to stuff <laughs> that I'd, I'd sit, you know, that, that, that you presented on um, um, elsewhere around um, in, in the UK. Um, um, but you, you, you I think I think we've got a passionate subject of yours, which is that of hypnotherapy training standards. Um, um, just just tell me before before I start asking you about it and we start exploring it. When 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 we say the term hypnotherapy training standards, what what are we talking about here? What do we mean? <laughs> I think when I when I talk about it, certainly I talk about it from two two perspectives that are complementary to each other. In that there are in the UK, although very few people seem to know about them, national occupational standards for hypnotherapy. Mm -hmm. And these were as a result of a government initiative many years ago now. And there's national occupational standards for quite a few different roles and jobs in the UK. And to complement those national occupational standards, the minimum competent standards that someone should have to be able to do that job, there's a core curriculum. And that covers areas and topics of both practical and theoretical nature that people will need to be able to do in order to meet the national occupational standards. So for me, there's a universal sort of minimum standard that I often talk about. But it's also about standards within individual training programs. So if you're going to be teaching hypnosis or hypnotherapy, that there are identifiable components within that that are measurable, that have standards. And I think that then would add and enhance the hypnotherapy profession generally. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is music to my ears because, you know, I I see a lot of people, a lot of people that are training or a lot of people that are hypnotherapists and they they end up comparing themselves to to people that 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 are all about artistry for example and it becomes very very difficult I mean how on earth do you measure someone's degree of artistry and it's not necessarily you know an all-important component within a hypnotherapy training Um, um, and so I I really like this so so tell me then um, um, what, what is it you'd like to see more of out there within within the field and within tr- hypnotherapy training full stop Some, something that came to me out of my my doctorate and it was actually one of the recommendations that i made as a result of my my research was there to be a baseline of training yeah because one of the things that i found and i i spent six years I maxed out my my allowable time Um, I spent six years researching hypnotherapy teaching and learning from a professionalism perspective Mm. and what I found was that it's so diverse and we know that hypnotherapy as a profession is diverse because of the the different theories that come into it so you will have people that are more psychodynamic or people that are more humanistic or gestalt or behavioral and that's that's fantastic that they take that particular perspective or that route but what I felt was that or found was that sometimes there are gaps in basic fundamental knowledge they haven't considered other methodologies and other paradigms Mm. so my view was that it would be really helpful to have a baseline, something like the core curriculum, that everybody who practices hypnotherapy, whether they're a researcher using hypnotherapy, and I mentioned some of the problems involved with research earlier. So whether they're a researcher, whether they're a hypnotherapist, 
whether they're a hypnotherapy teacher, that everybody has this minimum standard of training, this minimum um, syllabus that they've covered. And then they go on and specialize or become a GP. And if you think about it, other professions do this. Your dentists have a standard of basic training. Your doctors do. When you join the army or any of the forces, they have standard basic training that everybody goes through. So there's a commonality and an understanding across the field. And you can then have your, your expertise and develop on from that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it makes it makes a huge amount of sense, especially because, you know, in, in the UK currently, I mean, I, I, I cannot speak for the rest of the world because I don't have as much of an immersion, but I suspect it's pretty much the same in 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 a lot of the countries where where hypnotherapy is a is a developed field, a professional mm-hmm. field, um, you know, uh, people people that have a diploma level qualification all diplomas are not equal um <laughs> as you will no. know you, you know I, I have um we we offer up my own college offers up a, a, an advanced course and it pains me because when they when somebody says you know I've got a diploma I know that my own diploma course for example is very very different from from some schools and mm-hmm. things which I would presuppose as fairly fundamental even rudimentary concepts or, or, or knowledge base or practical skills are absent in some in some in, in some diploma level qualifications so you, you know I, I hear what you're saying and I am sold on it you know um, um, but 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 how does that get how does that get incorporated and potentially policed I, I couldn't agree with you more with, with that because something that I found early on in my studies I I did some research with online training And I bought off of the internet, in fact, it was off of eBay, um, (laughs) a a hypnotherapy training course, and it was £50, and I got 13 beautiful certificates, all at diploma (laughs) level, advanced diploma level. Um, I didn't actually complete the course because the content was minuscule, but the Mm. certificates were fantastic. Um, I don't and you had 13 them of them. <laughs> I had 13 of them. I mean, the quality of the paper was stunning. Uh, they would have fooled me if I hadn't done any research. Yeah. So there's that. And I've certainly found we at HypnoTC, we have, we use the National Guild of Hypnotists Hypnotherapy Certification. And I know that we have lost students who've gone, oh, it's only a certificate. But so-and-so's doing a week's training and they're going to give me an advanced diploma. Yeah, right. And it is sad that people are swayed by a label or titles and they don't hypnotize people. It's skill, knowledge and understanding that hypnotizes people. So it is, I think, a huge problem. And again, something that, you know, I think regulation is still a fair way off. Yeah. But the profession could develop their own standards. And that's something that would be, I think, a very positive thing and would enhance the public's perception of the profession if it were more self-policing. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. You know, Um, um, there's there's I've been I've been involved with uh, a number of hypnotherapy organizations over the past 20 years and found um, um, and found very often that, that that it's it's personalities driven and it's and it's self and people that are that, that are more kind of self interested more than you know wanting to really really develop the field. I was I was actually um, around in in Ukcho's heyday. You know um, I, I know they've kind of withered a little bit these days um, um, when 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 a lot of the national occupational standards were being agreed upon and and you know bigger schools were disputing and and so on and I think it's very difficult I, you know I, I absolutely agree that the field could come together and do that um, and 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 I wish it would and I wish there was more consensus about um, the quality of education and, and and people considering it to be more important. Yet I find, and you know, last week I was frothing at the mouth on on a Facebook Live, 
as a result of seeing the, you know, the, the amount of anti-intellectualism that exists within, oh. within the field of, of hypnotherapy. You know, people that say you don't need, you know, you don't need academic, you know, you don't, don't need an academic underpinning. You don't need these kinds of things. And, um, you know, I find that to be incredibly frustrating because, you know, I, I think even, even if people are doing a 165-hour course, um, or even if people are doing a sort of 10-month, 10 10-module 10 course rather than a five-day or a seven-day one, I still think that's quite brief when you compare it to, you know, more conventional psychologists or mental health mm. care nurses or something like that. You know, it's, um, it's still not likely to be as rigorous or thorough a training. Um, and, and I think that kind of brings me on to um, something that I thought was just absolutely charming and lovely that you said that really put a big smile on my face um, um, was this idea of people being out there once they are qualified or even before they're qualified and doing doing something that to, to use your phrase you called guru shopping yes yes it's it's something that occurred to me last year last year I think I went to the most hypnotherapy conferences in a year Mm. And I do. I, I think it's it's not quite an addiction, but I really do enjoy them. Yeah. It's fascinating to meet people, and get views from around the world. And something that that was becoming really clear was that a lot of people consider themselves as qualified hypnotherapists, and it's because they've gone from one prominent name to another prominent name, and they've learned little techniques, and. What happens is sometimes these techniques become very prominent because they're built on the basis of some a very simple concept. But if people don't have this baseline of training, they don't understand that if you break the concept down, it's something it's basic hypnotic phenomena. Yeah. So one of the problems I find is that people have these little isolated areas of training and there's nothing to create a common strand through them. Mm. There isn't this understanding of where behavioral hypnosis fits into analytical. And a lot of, a lot of um, the very short courses are very behavioral. And I was, I was appalled just last week to read somewhere on Facebook that, they were, oh, well, if that doesn't work, it's because the client's a moron. Well, no, yeah, I, I... it might just be that you haven't applied the right techniques. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I mean, it could be a, yeah, just just a, a million other things than the client being a moron. Okay, you know, p perhaps we've all encountered a client that perhaps as a as, as a leaning towards some moronic behaviour or thought process. But 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 even if so, even if they were a moron, then we ought to be equipped enough to be able to bring out the best in them and help them and collaborate with them and educate them and. And, and, you know, do better than just thinking they can't be helped. Yes, and I, I do, I have sat in, I have experienced quite a few different trainers. And it is a common thing, particularly amongst those that do very sort of brief, um, this is my model, it's the only model you'll ever need. And they make up for the limitations of that model by saying that you know, everybody, you know, if it doesn't work, it's somebody else's fault. Mm. And these models often have something very useful to contribute, but for me, they're part of an overall picture. Yeah. It's like having cake at every meal. You know, yeah. It isn't the only solution, or to use a very old analogy, you know, your hammer isn't great for screwing nails in, um, for, for screwing screws in. It's great for nails, though. Yeah, yeah. So... Having a broader toolbox and a greater understanding of how those tools work can only make you a better hypnotherapist. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the, the understanding is so important because, you know, I, I, I'm really pleased that you said that because a lot of hypnotherapy training, like I said, I was, I, I was kind of on my soapbox with regards to this idea of anti-intellectualism within the field and people saying that all that matters are, are practical skills. But if you don't have an underpinning rationale or an underpinning understanding of how something is effective or the mechanisms which make it effective, then what if the, the, the technique that you have verbatim regurgitated to the client what if it what if it doesn't go to plan and uh, you know wouldn't it be better if you had a good understanding um to, to be able to draw upon and to be able to work with as opposed to 
you know, my client is malfunctioning because my technique is not working and it ought to work on everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that that you know is is music to my ears that that, that you mentioned that and that you that you spoke about that. Um, um, are there things which you're involved in which you which you think are important for people to listen that are listening that they can do as far as um, as far as this is concerned that they can do to help contribute to raising hypnotherapy standards within the UK. I think something that every every hypnotherapist could do is to actually sit down and, and work out where their skill base is yeah. and maybe use the core curriculum as a, as a start as a baseline you know you could use it as a benchmark and you know where do you sit do you have those practical skills do you have that theoretical underpinning knowledge to support your practical skills and i totally agree that hypnotherapy is a practical therapy however if you don't understand what you're doing you may not be making the most of what you can do. So I think benchmarking is really useful. It's something else that came out of my doctoral research. I created a sort of thought-to-action professionalism model where mm. you can assess yourself from a complete novice up to an expert level. And it, it is really about identifying areas of practice where perhaps you could develop and it doesn't necessarily mean courses it might mean that you go and read a couple of books you do your own research but you you get your your training and your understanding so that you have a broader view of the field now it might be that you don't agree with some of it but at least you know about it yeah now some people really don't like analytical hypnotherapy but they may understand its concepts, its theories, how it might contribute to the client in front of them with an eating disorder, perhaps, or with trauma. Sure. So they, an understanding of what's going on with the client can be really, really useful. And certainly for people that are looking to, to engage in hypnotherapy training, I really would be encouraging them to be discriminating, really check out their trainers to check you know, for the obvious things like they're qualified, um, they're experienced and what they're actually going to teach people. As I say, I've been on courses where it's been totally practical and you don't get any teaching notes. You're just expected to remember it all. And that's great, but you get skill fade. And I did some research quite a few years ago now and found that with intensive training, yeah, People are very good at cramming, even if there's an exam at the end of the course. They're super good at cramming, but the knowledge fade is immense. So longer courses over a period of time with stuff to do in between tends to develop learning, integrate learning, and you get a higher skill level at the end of it. So for students to, or prospective students to be really discriminating about how what they're going to get and how they do it and also things like is the course student focused or is it all about the teacher's ego Mm. is it something where the almost the students are the stars they're there to be you know our view is that they're there to be nurtured Mm. and that it's our responsibility to help them be the best that they can be not copies of us which is good because rory and i are very different (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and uh, absolutely, and 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 you know, you know, th- th- this is another um um beautiful thing that you've just said that that is music to my ears because you know you, you see a lot of people that are, that are incredible personalities out there that you know perhaps perhaps the 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 and you know the, the personality of that individual is irrelevant in the grander scheme of things, but it's their their personality that perhaps is filling the course. Yeah, and, totally. Um, um, and and the noise that they make that is filling the course. Yeah, and, and and a lot of people tend to think, well, how can I be like that? You, you know, that that's not the kind of person that I am, and it becomes intangible. And you're quite right. You know, for for people to look at um, a proper core of, of 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 understanding as far as their skills are concerned, you know. I on occasion have been known to promote standardized applications just because it it, it pulls out, Mm. it pulls out 
the the variables such as you know personality and things like that and and that you know if you if you apply this particular process with the right intention and the right degree of professionality then it's very likely to develop certain kinds of results and i recognize that that gets sneered at very often but and that it needs it, it will often need some some developing as well and, the, and need to draw upon other skills but i love the idea of being able to pull out and lay be laid bare as far as the training is concerned and not just support a singular model or a singular process but instead teach you know educate people roundly and robustly and teach them both sides of a debate a discussion and not just the side that you land on not just the side that you favor and i think that's what education is and that's what mm. hypnotherapy training standards ought to be about I, I totally agree. I mean, something that, that we certainly teach and I'm very, very passionate about is that people understand not just the, the, the model, but the components of the model and what each part of that means. So we, we expect our students to, to be critical and to look at things from a critical perspective. Yes. And explore and understand things. You know, I totally agree with you about standardization in certain areas because things like when you're looking at hypnotic susceptibility. So the Stanford Hypnotic Susceptibility Scale, I used that in some research with the University of East London a few years ago. And it's a very standardized scale. But even that, I had unexpected results beyond the industry norm. And that could have been because I was a hypnotherapist and it's usually done by technicians. Yeah. So standardization is, is a really good starting point, but it may well be that people either have skill or haven't skill and that can influence the outcome as well. Same as, you know, if you like a technique, you'll probably put more into it than if you don't. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you, you, you had a good time with that technique in your training course, so you, you, you start you start to favour it in real life practice. Oh um, yeah, I mean, you know, I I remember something on Facebook a while ago, and it was this lovely strand that one of my students showed me, and it was about the fast phobia cure, or the rewind technique, however you want to call it, and they the the whole thread was about all the different ways in which you could use it everything from nail biting to psychosexual disorders to trauma to wanting to put on weight and it was it was staggering people get their favorite techniques but it's important to understand how each of them works and then how you can adapt them to suit the client and the environment as well yeah yeah absolutely absolutely now you may be able to tell that I, I could quite easily talk about this with you until midnight <laughs> tonight. Um, um, but that may not be as stimulating for our listeners as I would find it. Um, um, so um, um, we're, we're coming to the near the, the end of our time. Um, um, Kate, well, that thank went you. quickly. <laughs> I know. Um, thank you so much. Um, 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 I really appreciate um, what you've been saying and I really appreciate the, 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 your diligence and the contribution that you're continuing to make. Um, um, those people that wish to um, go and learn a bit more about Kate, what Kate offers the world and what Kate offers the field, um, um, visit www.hypnotc.com, all one word, hypnotc.com. Um, um, Kate, all that leaves for me to say is thank you very much for coming and being here on this podcast this week. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Great discussion there this week. Um, enjoyed that. Um, I had never heard of the notion of guru shopping before, and I plan on using that term a great deal from now on. Um, I got to speak to Kate for a while off air following the recording here, and um, and the discussions with her about skill fade and knowledge fade after short and intensive courses of training convinced me, um, uh, you know, more than ever, of many of the themes that I've discussed here before, and that there really should not be the sort of corner cut shorter ways to gain diplomas in the field of hypnotherapy, at least not if you want the best education and retention of skill and knowledge, which is ultimately going to make you a better and uh, more effective hypnotherapist. 
Okay, on to this week's evidence-based hypnosis factoid of the week. And the fact is simply this. Intense imagination correlates with high hypnotizability. Yes, indeed, intense imagination correlates with high hypnotizability. So that is individuals with a proneness to engage in vivid and seemingly real imaginative experiences tend to be highly hypnotizable. Um, that first and foremost is uh, has a foundations in a study by Hilgard back in 1970. Hypnosis has also been referred to as effortless experiencing by Bowers back in the 1980s, whereby the imagination is accompanied by a lack of awareness of being engaged in, a, in attention and imagination. Um, and um, um, this type of mental experience has the potential to enhance creative opportunities. So the evidence suggests that being imaginative aids responsiveness to hypnosis. Um, um, really neat. And um, I've included a bunch of references that have, that have helped me to compile that factoid of the week um, over at uh, this episode's page on the Hypnosis Weekly website. Uh, that's it for this week's 71st edition. Uh... I do have many more exciting guests that are welcome to Hypnosis Weekly in coming weeks too. We will be discussing, debating, celebrating and above all, remaining friends. Next time out, I welcome the trance lady herself. Yes, indeed, Joanna Cameron. And boy, oh boy, is there ever going to be a different kind of show and a half for you when that one airs. Um, all the references made in our discussions, along with related links, are posted at each episode on the Hypnosis Weekly website, W www.hypnosis-weekly.com. I absolutely welcome your thoughts, comments, suggestions and questions. So do please message me or add them on the Hypnosis Weekly website and I'll make sure they are addressed, answered and explored accordingly. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else. Really help us reach the hypnosis field. My thanks again to this week's guest, Kate Beaven-Marks and thanks to you as always for tuning in as you do. My name is Adam Eason. This has been Hypnosis Weekly. Until next time, goodbye for now. Mm-hmm.